Welcome to the Bad Book Reviews Podcast, a discussion on bad reviews of books loathed with the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Alexis DeWeese. This is not a chance for writers to exert revenge against cruel reviewers, but instead a place to discuss how we talk about books we don't enjoy, dish about the books we actually love, laugh a little about the oddities of the internet, and find a grain of truth in some rough critique. Welcome to the Bad Book Reviews Podcast. I'm Alexis DeWeese, and this week I'm talking with Arik Davis, author of numerous horror and suspense titles, including A Good and Useful Hurt, The Fort, and most recently, The Deer Hunter. Arik's depiction of darkness brings a longing for light more fully into view, and his no-nonsense style is distinct and captivating. I'm excited for you to get to hear from him and some of his less-than-enthusiastic readers today. Welcome, Arik. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation just because I know, um, so I mean, for our listeners out there, Arik and I have gotten connected through a writer's group and mutual writing friends. And we've had some conversations about reader reviews and critiques and just what kind of nonsense happens out on the internet. And I'm excited to share a little bit of those conversations with our listener base. So how many books have you released? Like you are quite prolific. What's the number at as of today? I think it's 12. Okay. I just put one out over the weekend. Um, Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Like I just did it. Um, it's it's called The Hollows. And it's, I don't know, it's it's horror. It's, <laughs> it fits in with everything you already said about my stuff. So, yeah, so not, not a whole lot needs to be said there. But yeah, I, I just put that out. So I think that's 12 now. So that would be... That's awesome four that I have self-published and then eight that have been published traditionally. So I'm like, I'm going to be swinging 50, 50 here pretty soon if I keep putting them out this fast. Yeah. So, okay. Walk me through this a little bit because you, so you were writing part-time now you're writing full-time and then you've also made the transition from traditional publishing to self-publishing. Like unpack that a little bit. How did that journey start and kind of what were the major events that unfolded to get you here? So when I first started writing, it was back in 2006, and I really knew nothing about what I was doing at all or even what my goals were other than I wanted to finish a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that, and I tried to sell it, and I couldn't. And that was sort of the the spark that got me into this whole mess. I did I, – I think I wrote five more before I finally sold them. I think it was my sixth manuscript that I finally managed to sell. That was a nickel-plated, just like a hard-boiled like YA novel about this 12-year-old P.I., and uh, I, I had and have a, a really good relationship with uh, some friends at uh, 47 North and with Thomas and Mercer, and they've put out all of my traditionally published stuff. Okay. Um, but, but every now and again with that, you'll find stuff that just doesn't fit, you know? And I think a lot of authors will have that too. Like not, not everybody's, you know, J.K. Rowling and Stephen King gets to write under fake names and just put out whatever they want. But I think for us, more of a like blue collar kind of writers, it's, it's kind of normal to find something that doesn't get placed right. But that doesn't mean that the stuff that can't get placed, is bad. you know, it just means that it wasn't right for a publisher at a certain point in time or at a certain point in your career. Yeah. And it, like you mentioned, I write a ton and I've got so many manuscripts just sitting around and for one like the hollows or the deer hunter that you mentioned earlier, I mean, not to get too writerly egotistical about it, but you know, 
you know when you wrote something that isn't crap, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you just you're aware of that. And I guess I just I wasn't frustrated by the publishing process. I was frustrated by this idea that just because something wasn't right for like a company to make money on mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it wouldn't be right for me to share with people. And that was kind of where I, I kind of wanted to approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really important when when you believe in the work and you have a way to put it out there, you have a reader base so you you can attract them in to these things you're putting out on your own. Um, so I think that's a really astute way to put out the work that you're passionate about without having to wait for a market to to be ready for it if the reader's already there. You know, I totally agree. And I, I think even if the readers aren't there, if you've got something that you know is worth sharing, then I think it's worth doing. And the, the other nice thing is, too, like my the, the good folks at uh, 47 North and Thomas and Mercer have always done an awesome job with covers. Um, I, I love all the covers they've done for me. But I've had a riot designing my own covers for the last couple, too, uh, especially the one for the Hollows. Um, it's, I basically made it out of popsicle sticks. And I'm like so excited about it. Like I think it looks so cool. It's just, it's bizarre. It, it, I don't know. It, I just having that little bit of degree, like if I were to tell an editor, like I'm going to make my own cover out of popsicle sticks, they'd either say yes and mean no, or they would just say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we can link to this in show notes so readers can take a look. Um, but I, I love how this has become more of a creative process for you than just the writing and the story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I didn't think I would like doing the cover stuff. And I I don't know, there's something very like, uh, I don't know, punk rock or like indie music kind of about it of like, no, I'm just going to do this the way that I want to do it. And if people want to come along for the ride, cool. And if they don't, you know, that's cool too. Like I've, I've got enough commercial stuff out there that if I put a couple of things out that are less commercial or maybe too weird or mm-hmm. just too whatever for the average, you know, reader, then I feel like that's okay. And I think that the the cover design of something like that should reflect sort of the, uh, the oddness of the project. Mm-hmm. And you've been heavily influenced by that music scene as well, correct? Yeah. It's, it's a major influence on everything I do writing wise. I, I wish I could write about that scene more eloquently. And I just, I've, I've tried so many times and I've got an idea for, <laughs> for a book that I really want to write that, uh, ho- hopefully will be the, the project is unfinished with the project that I'm working on right now that will allow me to, uh, play with like the indie music scene. That's really awesome. Is there anything just just randomly? Is there a group right now that like our listeners should be checking out that's really flipping your switch right now? Um, uh, Mercy Union just put out a record on Friday that's really good. They've got members of uh, Gaslight Anthem and The Scandals and Let Me Run, and it's it's really good. It's it's almost like a I don't want to say Springsteen rock and roll. It sounds like New Jersey. How's that? Okay. <laughs> um. So that. That that's a really good record, and then this uh, this band called the Shook Ones just put out a record Friday as well, and I don't think they've done anything since like two thousand eight or two thousand nine, and it's just fantastic to see that they're doing stuff again. So get those records. Yeah. I imagine most of your listeners would hate the Shook Ones, and a lot of them probably like Mercy Union. So pick up Mercy Union. <laughs> <laughs> but then they'll listen to this, and then they'll be ready for your next next when you've got that out there. Yes. Yes. So you, so you talked about how you made this jump from traditional to self. Do you think you're going to stay in the self-publishing realm? Are you feeling really pleased with the results of that? Or are you still trying to keep a foot in both worlds? You know, I would much rather only be traditionally published. Um, I, I, I'm not a good self-promoter. Like, I love doing the writing. I love designing the covers. 
Uh, I like doing all that kind of stuff. I don't like going out there and, you know, kind of shilling my work. Like yeah. something about that just feels like, I don't know, just gross. So this is why you hire me. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> why you hire Alexis so that she can do the shilling for you. Um, so that's, that's part of it. And the other part of it is there's just something about traditionally publishing that or traditional publishing that drew me into that like venue in the first place. So I, I have a feeling I'll, I'll, make my way back there eventually it's just about finding the the right project that's a good fit for them and a good fit for me that doesn't compromise the bottom line for them and doesn't compromise the like whatever it is i feel the time yeah that makes sense that makes complete sense Um, so i i'm gonna change tracks here so most of what you write is like in this horror suspense world um i feel like you've got a lot of stuff that's kind of tinged in both like sometimes slanting more towards one or the other. Um, but why horror? What has drawn you to that? What inspires you in that, in that genre realm? So I think a lot of that had to do with when I was pretty young, I wasn't allowed to watch like R rated stuff. Like I, I was born in the late seventies. So I grew up in an era where like parents would put down some like slapdash rule of like, you can't do this or you can't do that. And so I was allowed to do all sorts of crazy 80s stuff, um, but I was not allowed to watch R-rated movies. I was, however, allowed to read whatever I wanted because my parents just wanted me reading. Yeah. So I started reading all this like Stephen King, um, Vox, uh, Straub, all, all these really, really like dark um, authors at a very, very young age. And there's just something really appealing about it to me to the point where when I was finally able to watch like real horror movies with my friends, like it, they almost seemed less impactful. And I just, something about that really stuck with me, this idea of being able to write something that would like, I don't know, not scare somebody. Cause I think there's, there's very little of that in horror fiction, but to like, to make them unsettled, <laughs> I just, I don't know. Something about that really, really appeals to me mm-hmm. in a non weird way, of course. <laughs> No, I think that's great. I think there's, I I think it was an Alfred Hitchcock quote and I could be totally misrepresenting this. I'm not a Hitchcock like expert by any means, but I think he, he had given some sort of soundbite somewhere along the line um, where he was saying that the, the, the fear is not of the actual thing. It's of the closed door. So not the, not the thing behind the closed door, but the fact that the door is closed and you don't necessarily know if the thing is behind it or not, or entirely what it is. Um, and I feel like you, your work kind of has that vein about it where it's not, there's not this in your face-ness to what's actually being feared so much as the, the ethos surrounding what's being feared. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of that old thing, like where you look at um, older scary books, you know, pre-electricity, pre-industrialization, and they almost always end up in the woods because the woods were where you went to die. Like that's where all the, that's yeah. where all the bad stuff happened. Like that's where the, uh, I mean, human monsters and animals and starvation and just all sorts of, of terrible mm-hmm. things. Like, and I think we lost a lot of that in industrialization. So you almost have to create these, like these settings, you know, there's, no, there's nothing scary about a book where somebody's getting slaughtered on every page. There's something very scary about wondering what bad thing could possibly happen next. Mm-hmm. So how do you get yourself in that frame of mind? Like, this is not a frame of mind I personally am willing to go to, like, willingly. You know, like, I will do it for a book or for a good story, but this is not, like, where do you find that inspiration um, 
to to go to these places that our pre like that our now industrialized society has eliminated. So you're you're creating these things. How does that work for you? So I read a lot of true crime stuff. Um, so I've got this massive backlog of like real her- horrific happenstance kind of dry upon, and I, I think that can be helpful because almost invariably, you know the the old saying is true about truth being stranger than fiction. And it, it usually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a good basis to have. Um, I really think a lot of it just has to do with uh, just kind of being that weird kid that watched horror movies, <laughs> read <laughs> scary books and just kind of evolving into that. I don't think it's the sort of thing you could just wake up tomorrow and flip that switch and be like, I'm going to write horror books or I'm going to write scary stuff. I think you sort of have to like, earn your way there. You know, maybe it's not that 10,000 hours from Malcolm Gladwell where you become an expert, but I do think you have to sort of put in the work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you see so many like schlocky horror movies is that people have this <laughs> idea of what a horror movie is supposed to be, but they don't really think about what it, what it really is. Mm-hmm. And I, I, w- I will say that uh, horror fiction um, fans tend to guard that thing better than the horror movie fans do. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, there's certainly schlock out there, but it's it's usually like well intended schlock. Like you don't you don't pretend that it's anything <laughs> but what it is. Interesting. Oh, I love that there's like a whole culture around that. And speaking of the culture around that, we have some people who who have some thoughts on your place in that culture. Of course, Are you ready they do. to get into some of your some of your bad reviews. Yes. All right. So the first review I have selected for you is for your book, Tunnel Vision. So why don't you give us just a short soundbite of what Tunnel Vision is about? Okay. So Tunnel Vision is about these two friends, these two um, uh, teenage girls that basically discover that one of their aunts was murdered 20 years in the past. So they decide they want to try and figure out what actually happened to her. The, The man who did it is in jail, but there's sort of a growing movement around him um, that suggests that maybe he didn't do it. Sort of like a uh, what happened with the West Memphis Three when all the uh, celebrities of the I don't know celebrities of the day sort of like gathered around them and and tried to free them with I don't know. In that case, I suppose with good results. I don't think it normally happens, turns out well. <laughs> um, and then the uh, sort of to add in the other part of that, and I took the character Nickel from my first novel, Nickel Plated, and sort of plugged in in Nickel there. And Nickel in the first book is this, uh, he's a, in Nickel Plated, he's a 12-year-old kid. He works as a private detective. He doesn't have parents. He sells drugs to make money. Um, so bringing him back into Tunnel Vision where he's somewhere on 15 or 16, I, I don't even think I know exactly how old he is. Um, and, putting him in an environment with these two girls that have grown up kind of normally was really interesting just to, to play with those two things. And of course it's got all this awful stuff that happens as well, but yeah, so that's, that's the synopsis there. All right. Great. So we have a critic who didn't like that premise so much. Yeah. So this is a one star review entitled do not bother. So I'm going to delve into this and then we can discuss if I could give this half a star or even no stars, I would. Awful book. Do not waste time or energy or brain cells on this horrible, poorly written junk. I have heard worst movie list. This should be on worst book list. If you think of buying, try a sample first, then save money, time, and energy. There are just not words enough to convey how much this book sucks. So that, that, congratulations on making worst book list. I wish there was one. Like I would, (laughs) 
if there was a Rotten Tomatoes for books and I want a Razzie or a, like a, like a Razzie for books, I would be totally into that. If there's a Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> for books, I would be into that too. Like, I feel like that should be a thing. I feel like it should be, but I, I want I want nothing to do with starting it. Like I I think I would enjoy it <laughs> existing, but I don't want to be the jerk that like put that into place. <laughs> For any ambitious listeners out there, we're we're intrigued with what you could pull off. Yeah, we like the we like the idea. It's it's good stuff. So. <laughs> A couple of things about this review. So for Tunnel Vision, um, I was lucky enough to have that uh, book placed in this very unique um, like release program with uh, Thomas and Mercer at the time. Okay. And that it came out and it was basically free for anyone who was uh, owned a Kindle for the first, like I think, 30 days after release. Okay. So, I mean, it like thousands of people got this book for free. So – it's very possible this person that's telling other people not to buy it got their copy gratis from my publisher, which just makes the whole thing even funnier because it really showcased so much they must have truly hated it to hate something free. I mean, like it's, it's sort of the equivalent of somebody giving you a free hot dog and then you just punch them in the face. Like it. <laughs> I've just been really impressed by like the rule of three that they have. Like you're, you do not waste time, energy, or brain cells, and then later they don't want you to. They want you to save money, time, and energy. Like there's, there's some nice, like there's a really nice juxtaposition there in the symmetry of it. Well, it's kind of like we're we're like we're like seeing their style as an author, right? right? Like we exactly. <laughs> like there, are, there are some words missing, I think, but. I just, I appreciate what they have going there, like that they were passionate enough, spurred by this free book to like come up with something that, I mean, could be poetic, really. And, you know, I, as much as I don't like the review, because it, it doesn't like me, <laughs> I have to really respect the, like the passion they approached hating my work with. I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. there's something to be said about that. I mean, they, they are not mincing words. They absolutely despise uh, my writing and tunnel vision. And I, I don't know. I, I don't like it. But I really respect it. You know, like they, I mean, they logged on, they wrote this, they cared enough. Like I, I, I'd like that. We don't know why it's necessarily poorly written or why it's so awful. Like we did that's, that's left as a mystery. This could be, this could be burgeoning horror fiction. There's like, there's something there. There's a danger there that they're really disturbed by that. We don't, we don't know what it is. So what always gets me to these reviews is I want to know so badly how far they got. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be great if you, like, you don't think this person of, finished it? You don't think with oh, this? Oh, no, like, no, I, <laughs> I don't think so. But I do want to know how far they got. Like, did, did they make it 20 pages? Like, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about tunnel vision. I'm like, where would, where would the parts that would really bother somebody be? And I'm just not sure what those spots would be. But I, I would like to know, like, what it was that put yeah. them over the edge. Like in the Oscars, they show like what scene like really clinched it for like best actor or whatever. Like you need to know like what scene clinched it for you on worst book list. Yes, yes, yes. absolutely. I think that's critical for whoever puts worst book list together. I think that is a critical thing. Like we need to know, especially multiple people are like, yeah, this part, that was when I knew. That was it. That was the line. That was, that was the point of dialogue. Yes. I, th- I, think, I think we've got something here. Like if anybody just wants to run with this idea, we fully, we fully endorse it and sign off any, any royalty rights. Oh yeah. All right. Just, just go for it. Just do it. Just, just make it. Okay. So this next review is also one star entitled disappointed. 
So this one is for a good and useful hurt. So why don't you give us a snapshot there and then we'll delve into disappointed because it's a gem. So a good and useful hurt is probably, if not my favorite book that I've released, it's, it's, it's either my first or second favorite. And I, I just adore a lot of it. And that's because it was mostly written about the uh, close to two decades that I spent working in a tattoo shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good and useful hurt is basically about this like sad sack tattoo artist named Mike that meets this uh, woman named Deb. They have this awesome relationship. Um, something terrible happens. Uh, but what Mike discovers along the way is that he can take the ashes of deceased people and put them into ink, tattoo their loved ones with that ink, and when they dream, they'll be able to have this incredibly lucid, um, not really a vision, but basically be able to kind of exist in this dream state with the person that they lost that's now been tattooed into their arm or leg or whatever. Interesting. So that's 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 the premise. Yeah, I again, I... I, I didn't come up with the idea of uh, ashes and ink. This woman, Raylan Galena, did years before I wrote okay. that book. But I've seen it done in the tattoo shop, and it just kind of sparked me. It's like, what if that actually like did something? Like, how cool would that be? So it's never explained why it works. It's just it's one of those like you're coming along for the ride. You just have to accept this is this is how it's going to be. Well, this this reader was disappointed by this ride, so this is what they had to say. I could not get into this book. The dialogue was so bad and the story was just boring. I don't want to pigeonhole piercers, but I would doubt Deb would actually talk like that. And what's with all the beer talk? I love beer, but I don't need to read about a waiter explaining IPAs in a mystery. So do you, here's the question for, for you, Arik. Do you feel pigeon held as a piercer? So I don't feel pigeon held as a piercer. I, I felt more like a mechanic as a piercer than an artist, which I always thought was kind of neat because I worked with a bunch of tattoo artists and they'd get very like, like, I don't know, very stuck up over having to do like the same thing again. And I'd be like, all I'm doing is piercing bellies and <laughs> tongues and stuff. Like I'm literally like doing oil changes on people. <laughs> so um, I, the, what I find is so funny is obviously this reader does not, know your background that you're you're writing this out of your own experience um and i just i really i had a good chuckle knowing that that's part of your experience and getting to so it. the funny thing is i think i'm more offended by the beer thing <laughs> by the piercing thing so i guess a little a little more backstory on this this manuscript was one of the uh one of the five that i wrote before nickel plated got picked up this was put up by thomas and mercer in 2000, or not Thomas and Mercer, by 47 North in 2012. They picked it up in 2011. I think I wrote it in 2008. Okay. So basically the beer explanations are like some basic craft beer stuff going on, like explaining craft beer like types and stuff, which at the time that it was published, and especially the time it was written, that was a lot less like available. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling who knows where they're from maybe they're a little more versed in that scene or whatever and it just i don't know seemed kind of annoying but i i i i do not feel bad about helping to explain <laughs> what ipa means because i still think most people don't know what ipa like why that beer exists like why it's called an india pale ale and for those who haven't read the book or who don't know it was called india pale ale because it was packed onto ships with british sailors headed for india and it was made stronger so that it wouldn't go rotten as quickly, hence India Pale Ale. Ta-da. 
Yes. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get reviews now saying that they love beer, but they don't want to hear a writer explaining IPA. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just I love that. Like I I think this is another instance in which it would probably have been really helpful to know like when this person stopped if they stopped. Like because I'm thinking like because that's such like a distinct detail and such a small like portion of what's happening in this novel that like. I'm guessing that they probably got to that scene and were like, that's it. I'm writing my review. I think so too. And the, the dead dialogue thing too is weird as well. Like she's extremely brash, Okay. but I don't feel like she's like out there. Like if anything, it just feels to me like she's this strong female character that just doesn't really care what other people think of her, which I, hmm. I think that's kind of admirable. Like, I <laughs> I just, I, I just think that like, I mean, I'm going to, I usually like to default to like the writer who's being the expert in some of these things. And I just think it's funny that like, he's saying that like, because she's a piercer, she wouldn't like, he doesn't, he doubts, I don't know. It might be a he, it might be a she, but they doubt that, you know, she would talk like this being a piercer. I just think that's really hilarious. Like, yeah, it, it makes you wonder like, did how connected are they to that scene? Like, I've never really thought of piercers talking in like a certain way. Or like there being like a, I don't know, like, you know, you think of like how cowboys talk or like how pirates talk. Like, I don't think like <laughs> how body piercers talk falls into that same like obvious lexicon of, uh, you know, speech patterns. No, well, we can, I mean, you've been talking for a while. We'll, we'll let our, our listeners judge. That. Perfect. <laughs> throw it at us in the comments. We'll see what happens. Now, you know about India Pale Ale, so you can throw that in the comments, too. Um, but I just I find I find it really funny because these are like two very distinct details outside of the whole. Like we don't know necessarily what's going on with the plot or like really like we just know these very distinct details of what was really turning them off to the book. It's really hard to judge like as a reader, like d- trying to decide if this book is something they're into or not to go off of this review and be like, Oh yeah, I hate when people talk about IPAs. I'm not going to buy this book. You know, like it's just not, it's just not super helpful. You know, I totally agree. And I, we had talked about trying to find some helpful reviews and I, I looked pretty extensively and there was one, I wish I could have found it. I know it wasn't a one star because it was mostly, um, complimentary. It was for my book, rough men, which is about this, uh, man whose son is murdered horrifically and he decides to go get payback. Like it's your classic, like hard boiled. I don't know. I don't want to say hard boiled nonsense. Cause I don't feel like it's a nonsense book, but it's, it's a hard boiled <laughs> book. How's that? Great. A- anyways. Though, so that review, it wasn't a terrible, I wish I could find it or found it. But um, anyways, basically I had one of the characters in that book shoot an AK 47 mm-hmm. and I, there's two things that I sort of pride myself on in my work and that's being very realistic with how weapons work. And if I'm going to have somebody that has uh, body modifications like tattoos or piercings, I'm going to get it right. Well, the AK 47 in this book um, basically had a setup. So when the last bullet was fired out of it, it would hold the bolt open a bolt and a firearm is the, the piece that sort of pushes a bullet forward in its case and then extracts the case once the bullet has been shot. All right. Now, the only AK-47 I had ever used was a friend's, and it it had this ability to hold a bolt open. What I didn't know was that that was a customization that this man had made to his his, his gun, (laughs) and that like the millions of other AK-47s out there, unless they also had this modification, did not have the ability for that bolt to hold open. And 
I read that and I wanted to die. And then I was like, you know what? That's a lesson. Like you just don't presume something. So now even when it's something that I feel like I make sure to do that extra little bit of diligence because this is something where I like literally had the piece of equipment in my hands, used it, Mm -hmm. felt well-versed in it enough to write about it. And I was still totally wrong because the physical example that was in front of me wasn't a mirror of other physical examples out there. Mm. So I thought that was a good takeaway. I, I, I wish I could have found that one because I, kudos to that guy. Yeah. No. And if you find that, feel free to send it my way. We'll link it in show notes for you guys who are listening. But I think that it's so important in putting together a piece of work. You're, you're really trying to honor the reader's experience there. You're trying not to distract them. You're trying to keep them in that world you're creating. Uh, so I, I really appreciate your diligence in trying to keep that experience pure for the reader who knows exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I can only under, I can only imagine kind of that turmoil of like, Ugh, I tried really hard to get it right. And it did exactly the opposite. It's just, it's just such a critical thing. I think, especially when you're writing really out there, impossible stuff, like most of my stuff is that you have the, the parts that are real as real as possible. Otherwise it just seems like the whole thing is fake. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's one thing when you're reading like a, a high fantasy novel or a hardcore sci-fi novel. And you, you know, going in, like this whole thing is going to be largely make believe, but when it's happening in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and everything about it is realistic, except for the actual events, you need to get that stuff right. So it is pretty embarrassing when you, when you make Mm -hmm. a mistake like that. That's awesome. Thanks for sitting down and having this conversation with me. No problem. It's been fun. I have just really appreciated kind of your, your humor and your no nonsense, like, writing style. It's been a lot of fun to get to know. And thanks for sharing that with our listeners today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Alexis. So thank you, listener, for joining me and Ark Davis on the Bad Book Reviews podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Be sure to check out The Deer Hunter. We'll link to that in show notes. Um, We'll also link to The Hollows, so you can check that one out fresh this weekend. Um, You can also check out Ark's world at arkdavis.com. You can follow me on Instagram at ALDeweese and on Twitter at Lex from Bohemia. If you want to connect with us at the show, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at bbrpodcast at apricotservices.com. You can follow the show at apricot services on instagram and twitter the bad book reviews podcast is a production of apricot services this episode has been made possible by sound engineer peyton burst digital producer peter ford and executive producer alexis deweese